We'll hear argument next in case 08103, Elsevier versus Muchnick. Mr. Sims. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Second Circuit's decision vacating for lack of jurisdiction a settlement agreement that compensated authors for all their arguably infringed works in the face of Congress's direction that Federal District Courts shall have jurisdiction over any civil action arising under copyright is wrong for three reasons. First, even First, the decision is incorrect under the unanimous holding three years ago in Arbaugh that where Congress affords unqualified subject matter jurisdiction, other statutory provisions argued to be jurisdictional that do not clearly restrict that jurisdiction won't be deemed to do so. This is a lot harder case than Arbaugh, though. Arbaugh involved the definition of an employer and then the scope of the, the statute. It, this one says no suit shall be instituted. Well, Ar- Arbaugh relied heavily on the Zipes case, and the Zipes case involved a statutory threshold condition much like the one here. You couldn't bring a Title VII action unless you filed a particular kind of piece of paper with the EEOC, and Zipes and Arbaugh both held um, that those statutory um, conditions or essential ingredients um, were not jurisdictional, and the Court relied uh, heavily, I think, on the fact that jurisdiction was separately provided for and the provisions at issue weren't. The second point I want to make is that even putting the clear statement rule of Arbaugh to one side, statutory text, structure, purpose, and history all point to classifying 411A as mandatory but not jurisdictional. I think you're right that Arbaugh at least set forth a clear statement rule, but I think that's significant only going forward. I don't know that Congress, when it passed this provision, could have been aware of the clear statement rule that Arbaugh articulated. Well, the, the, the Court did apply, uh, reiterate and apply the Arbaugh rule in the Rockwell case with respect to a provision that had predated Arbaugh, and nothing in Arbaugh said that. But in any event, our second point is that if you look at the traditional indicia of not only text but also structure, history, and purpose, um, this provision should be ranked as mandatory but not jurisdictional. And the third point I want to get to. Do you agree with the, with the government that it's mandatory for the district court but prohibited to the Court of Appeals? I think the government has this hybrid where the, because of the public purposes served by registration, not only can, but the district court should raise the failure to register on its own, but then the government says once you have a final judgment in the district court, it's no longer open to the Court of Appeals to raise it on its own. Do you agree with that, or do you say it's for the defendants to raise, and if they don't raise it, too bad? Uh, Justice Ginsburg, we certainly agree with the government with respect to the Court of Appeals. With respect to the district court, um, on the one hand, my clients don't are satisfied with the government's position. On the other hand, as Justice Scalia's uh, decision, I think, in Day versus McDonough pointed out, the traditional default rule really is that um, defenses are up to uh, defendants to raise. In this particular kind of situation, where there's no reason at all, I think, to suspect that um, defense counsel will not um, raise 411 whenever, none of the cases that Ms. Merritt uh, raises, for example, involved situations of waiver where the issues weren't raised until the Court of Appeals. I think that the Court can rely, frankly, on um, defendants and on the ability of district judges to nudge defense counsel when they, when they need nudging. Um, but if the Court felt that the um, provision was important enough so that uh, it wanted to impose on district courts the obligation of strict policing, I think it could. But as I say, I've been practicing copyright law for 25 years. I've never seen a defendant who either missed the defense or chose not to raise it. The third point uh, I want to raise, if there's time, is simply that even if 411A were deemed jurisdictional at the outset of a case with respect to its language, which talks about instituting, nothing in either its text or purpose suggests that Congress meant to deprive district courts of their usual power um, to settle cases with respect to approving settlement agreements. In this case, because the plaintiffs complied with 411A uh, at the front door by alleging uh, properly that they had complied with uh, the obligation, we think the district court had jurisdiction to send the parties to mediation and then necessarily to approve the agreement they returned with three years later. Um, Now, with respect to — Can can I ask you, one of of the points made by the amicus is that, uh, if I recall it correctly, that — 
what, what Congress had in mind in phrasing it this way was to enable uh, enable the party who had not gone to the Copyright Office to go after dismissal on jurisdictional grounds. And the uh, implication is that if it were not held to be jurisdictional, there would be a merits dismissal because of the failure to have gone to the Copyright Office first. And therefore, would not, the uh, plaintiff would not be able to come back to the Court. Um, I don't understand um, the amicus to be making that argument. If Your Honor is referring to the third, the third sentence of 411A, um, I think that's the principal argument she makes as to why this satisfies our law. Uh, and we think, quite to the contrary, the third sentence of 411A. Well, I, 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 didn't, I didn't think it re- related to the third sentence. I, I thought she said the whole purpose of Congress was to make sure that uh, you'd be able to come back, that your failure to uh, go to the Copyright Office initially would not result in a merits dismissal so that you could not later go back and then rebring the suit. If it was jurisdictional, just a jurisdictional dismissal, the jurisdiction could be cured by going to the Copyright Office, and your suit could then proceed. Uh, Your Honor, I I think that um, because of the way 411A is phrased, um, dismissals under 411A, whether we're correct that it's not jurisdictional or whether they're correct that it is, I think ordinarily um, it's without prejudice. You'd be able able to come back anyway. Absolutely. I I think that's the nature of this requirement. That's what I thought you'd say. Yes. with respect to the Arba argument, I, if the statute of limitations had run, could you still come out? The problem in this case, and really the reason why the settlement agreement has uh, turned out the way it did, I mean, not, not there is no effect. But, but in a typical case, there is no effective statute of limitations in these cases, Your Honor. And that, in a typical case, well, uh, or is it just like in 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 a case where the infringement is the uh, existence of something on the web? Yeah, yeah. Um, then there is no statute of limitations effectively, um, because the argument would be that the making available um, is an infringement. Um, we don't think that the last sentence of uh, 411A um, satisfies ARBA or indeed is, is uh, any evidence toward this being um, jurisdictional. The last sentence was inserted, uh, as the history makes perfectly clear, to solve the problem created by the Vacheron decision that the Second Circuit had decided in 1958. And in that case, um, what Justice Judge Hand had, had done, and other courts had done it too, is to say um, it is uh, district courts cannot review the register's action um, in denying registration, and that has to be done in a separate mandamus action at that point in Washington, D.C. And so the lesson simply is Congress's way of saying very clearly, we want to get rid of that rigmarole and we want to allow all this to be done efficiently. But the, the statement that um, this could be done even if the register didn't show up uh, is not at all any statement, much less a clear statement, that this was intended to be jurisdictional. Mr. Now, Simpson, it has been pointed out that you have taken inconsistent positions, that is, back in the district court, before there was a settlement, you urged before the district court that 411A was a jurisdictional bar and that that pre- precluded certifying a class that included the non-registered copyright holders. You did make that argument in the district court, and now you're saying you're confessing error that was wrong? Your Honor, I don't think it's fair to say that we made that argument. We did, we did issue, we did say that sentence one or two places, and uh, the, well, argument, the argument, but I think it's I think it's different because the issue in the district court was um, the fairness, reasonableness, and adequacy of the settlement, and there was an attack on the different valuation for unregistered claims. In that context, we relied on 411A. The argument w- would have been exactly the same uh, had we said, as we should have, um, uh, that 411A is mandatory but not jurisdictional. We were guilty. Uh, of exactly the loose language that this court was guilty of in Robinson and Smith, as it pointed out in uh, Eberhard or Contract. 
Um, and, but as, but as, as the Court's decision in that case said, there was no need to overrule Robinson or Smith because really what was going on there was the Court had been saying the rule was mandatory and the additional language that was jurisdictional was, was loose language. Our argument never focused on the ranking of 411A. It was always rooted in the existence of the rule, which did justify, and on the merits of the appeal back in the Second Circuit, we will uh, again argue did justify a different valuation of the claims. Well, you shouldn't use loose language, especially when it's the same loose language, supposedly, that seems to have been used by all the courts of appeals and all the district courts. Um, not all the For courts. For years and years. Your, Your Honor, um, the first court of appeals which uh, said that 411A said, not held, was um, jurisdictional was in 1990. That's well after the 1976 Act. And the original Act had been, I mean, the 1909 Act, which it was patterned after, uh, had been nearly 100 years earlier. There was no Court of Appeals that ever said that the 1909 Act was jurisdictional. And when this Court had that case, in the Washingtonian case in the 1930s, um, there was no reference to it being jurisdictional by either the majority or the dissent. And I think Washingtonian is particularly interesting because there the district court had originally held that it was jurisdictional and then sua sponte recanted a few days later, issued another decision. Um, and that's in the record of this court in Washingtonian, and it was pointed out by uh, Professor Ben Kaplan in the uh, report to the Register and to Congress in connection with the 1976 Act. So um, the issue was raised for people to think about if anybody had, um, but Congress did not in 1976 uh, or uh, at any time earlier um, say that this was intended to be jurisdictional or was jurisdictional. Um, uh, so if, if passing the Arbaugh argument with respect to text, structure, history, and purpose, um, the structure, I think, is particularly uh, telling because, in this case, the um, provision of jurisdiction is in Title 28. The provision of uh, registration is in uh, the Copyright Act. They've been separate from But still, from it's a statute, and didn't — this court say in Bowles that a statutory qualification on the right to sue is generally jurisdictional. Uh, I don't think the court said that. I think it, the court said that in Bowles with respect to um, time limits for appeal. Yes. I think Bowles is quite clearly limited to time limits to appeal, and the court's decision rested on uh, heavily on stare decisis with respect yeah, to that. But I thought order. they made a distinction to distinguish the. Other cases, the one, I forgot, the one involving Criminal Rule 33, on the ground, well, that's a court rule. But when Congress makes the qualification, then it's jurisdictional. Um, but this doesn't involve a, a time limit. This involves, uh, as Arbaugh and Zipes did, um, ingredients of the claim, preconditions to the claim, threshold steps with respect to the claim. And I think there's no reason for the Arbaugh approach not to apply but in any event, um, the structure is telling here. The language is telling as well. Um, well, what, talking about the language, what about John R. Sand and Gravel? That said, we held it was jurisdictional when the statute said suit shall be barred. The language here is no suit shall be instituted. That sounds pretty close. Um, I, I think not, Your uh, Chief Justice Roberts. Um, the language here has been used uh, in copyright statutes in 1831, uh, as our reply brief uh, points out and includes the language, for statutes of limitation and for copyright notice, and all of those have always been deemed mandatory. None of them have been deemed uh, jurisdictional. Again, Section 507 of the Copyright Act, um, the statute of limitations provision here, has almost exactly the same language as in 411. Um, John R. Sand, I think the Court treated as in Bowles, really is that a was super- a, That was a statute of limitations provision, right? It shall be barred after six years? Uh, well, John R. Sand involved the special situation of suits against the government and considerations of sovereign immunity. I thought and the I court the said it was mandatory. I don't remember when they used the word jurisdictional. Well, I do think John R. Sand held that that provision was jurisdictional, but I think um, the decision went off on, on, um, uh, on stare decisis and the fact that the court had, with respect to the Tucker Act and matters of suits against the government taking a different position. Those, I think, are really the only carve-outs, statutory time limits for appeal um, and suits against the government uh, from the general Arbaugh rule. Um, So here, Congress has used this language repeatedly. Um, This Court's own uh, forms for copyright infringement, which were first promulgated in the 1930s, 
have patterned our argument and are contrary to uh, the amicuses. They've always treated um, the registration provision of the model complaint differently from the jurisdictional provisions. Those are in separate sections, um, not next to each other even. We have forms for copyright infringement actions? Um, you do. Uh, the yeah. federal rules. Yes. Well, and, and live and learn. And because they haven't changed very much in uh, 70 years, you probably haven't spent much time with them. Mr. It, it's Form 19. Yes, it was originally Form 17. We've gone through the history. But I think there's really only one change, and in every respect it's identical to what it was um, in 1938. And again, as I say, it separates out the registration provision from the jurisdictional provision. Um, if Congress had wanted to make uh, registration um, jurisdictional, it would have been extraordinarily easy to do so. All they would have had to add at the beginning of 411A is notwithstanding anything in 1338 and 1331. We have, we have included in our brief as an appendix about 60-odd federal statutes which carved out jurisdiction otherwise provided by 1331 or other provisions. And 411A looks nothing like them. They all look roughly like each other. Can I um, ask you sort of a, a basic question I never understood about this case? As I understand, at the end, end of the line, we're concerned with the fairness of the settlement, and particularly to people who have copyrights that have never been registered. And, am, am I right that that's what? Well, not, not quite. There were, there were 10 authors who objected, I mean, as a group, and they wanted more money for um, unregistered authors. There were, needless to say, tens of thousands of other authors who didn't object. Um, but it is true that the objectors wanted, um, thought that they had gotten but the Those bit. were people who owned some registered copyrights but had other works that were not, had no registered copyrights. Is that right? Uh, I, were there any of those people who had no, no copyrights at all? Well, they, uh, I don't know, Your Honor, whether the objectors had any registered works. I know that the named plaintiffs had more unregistered works than registered works. They had some registered works. Yes. You see, one of the, one of the risks involved here is the, of the people who had no registered works are being adequately protected by this Class C settlement. Yes. Uh, this is and, not a situation. Just to get the question on the table, I don't want to take too much of your time. I don't understand how it makes any difference whether you say the rule is mandatory or the rule is jurisdictional in terms of the fairness of the settlement at the end of the line. I don't think that has anything to do with the fairness of the settlement. I think we're here because um, the Second Circuit blew up the settlement and said we can't settle this case. And the only way it was settleable was to give the publishers and the databases complete peace by clearing all of this off. And so — And that, that certainly would be open. If you, if you are correct that the Second Circuit shouldn't have cut this off at the threshold by saying it's jurisdictional, the question of the fairness of the settlement is what — you were contending. That's correct, Your Honor. I'd like to reserve the balance of my time, but the, um, the, the adequacy and fairness of the settlement is back in the Second Circuit on remand. Thank you, Counsel. Ms. Anders. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Statutory prerequisites to suit, like Section 411A, often fall into one of two distinct categories. They are either jurisdictional and therefore unwaivable or they are not jurisdictional and are fully waivable. Section 411A's registration requirement falls in the middle of those two extremes. It is not jurisdictional, but it should not be fully waivable. The provision does not speak to the power of the courts to decide cases, and therefore it does not limit the court's jurisdiction to adjudicate infringement suits. But because it is phrased in mandatory language, the requirement should be strictly enforced whenever the defendant asserts it. And because the requirement serves important public interests that are independent of the concerns of the parties to any individual suit. So, so your position is that the district court really should have dismissed this case at the outset? I think that in the ordinary case, the district court should, uh, when, when the defendant waives the requirement, which would be the rare case when the defendant doesn't assert it, when the defendant waives the requirement, the district court should consider whether accepting that waiver would undermine the public interest behind 411. Now, in this particular case, it may not have been an abuse of discretion for the district court to consider those interests and decide that here it would have been acceptable to accept the defendant's waiver and permit the resolution to go forward. Because in this case, the periodicals uh, that, that are involved, the works at issue, uh, were primarily already uh, in the possession of the Library of Congress uh, because they've been registered as the 
periodicals themselves had been registered. So the library's interest was not as strongly implicated here. In addition, this is a case in which there was going to be a settlement, so the Court wasn't going to need to adjudicate the copyright claims, and therefore the uh, opportunity for the register's views to be taken into account was less important. Maybe this is the same question. Are you representing the interest of the Library of Congress? Uh, yes, we're, we're representing the interest of the Library of Congress here. Uh, so I think in this case, it may have been appropriate for the District Court to uh, conclude that um, that it could let the settlement go forward, notwithstanding the fact that uh, some unregistered copyrights were involved. But after adjudication on the merits, uh, if the defendant has waived the requirement and it hasn't come up, Section 411A, like any other non-jurisdictional rule, uh, should be subject to the general principle that issues that are not raised below should not be uh, considered for the first time on appeal, absent extraordinary. You were candid, Ms. Andrews, to say that this is in a, a hybrid category. Uh, the Correct. government was taking uh, an intermediate position. Do you know of any other provision where the district court has an obligation to raise the question on its own motion that is yet not jurisdictional? I think this Court has recognized that waiver doctrines in general are discretionary, and so particularly uh, in the area of raised judicata, uh, the Court has recognized in uh, Plout versus Spencer Farm and um, Arizona versus California that the Court has the discretion uh, to enforce raised judicata on its own motion. Very, very limited. I think Arizona didn't say just any time there's a preclusion plea, it's the court can raise it on its own. That's correct. I, I think also the plain error rule presupposes that um, there are some errors that the district court has a responsibility to correct on its own, even though neither party has brought the error to its attention. So in other words, the district court um, has, has the obligation to issue a legal ruling that neither party asked for. And I think that kind of regime is particularly appropriate here because the public interests at issue, the library's interest and the interest in a public record of copyrights, those don't depend on the defendant's litigation uh, decisions. They shouldn't depend on the, uh, def- the defendant's particular strategic decisions within a particular case. The library's interest will always be in having every work registered, and the public interest in the public record will be the same. Is your discussion of that, including in your response to Justice Ginsburg and in your brief, do you think that's within the question presented that we rephrased? I think it is fairly subsumed within the question presented, um, because the question of whether the question of whether the rule is jurisdictional or not, I think, it, um, also encompasses the question how the rule should be enforced, um, assuming that it's non-jurisdictional. Of what should happen in this case? So I do think that um, uh, the character, the characterization of this rule as a mandatory or waivable rule is, is within the question presented. So I think that the regime we're proposing best gives effect to the mandatory but non-jurisdictional language uh, that Congress used in Section 411A. And it also protects the public interest that the requirement serves, which, again, um, the compilation of a public record of uh, copyrighted works um, in the Copyright Office, which allows a robust licensing system under the Copyright Act. But how, how would we get to uh, hold what, what, what you say is the law? It seems to me once we decide it's not jurisdictional and once we agree with you that it doesn't, at least in this case, didn't have to be, uh, raised sua sponte by the district court. That's the end of the case. And, and so why do we have to engage in the further discussion? Well, ordinarily the district court must raise it on its own and, uh, you know, and if it doesn't, ordinarily, uh, you know, the appellate court should. Why do we have to get into that? I don't think that you have to get into it, Justice Scalia. I think Which means we shouldn't. <laughs> Well, that may be the case, but I think uh, uh, we're simply uh, trying to trying to explain to the court what we think uh, how the rule should be applied in the district court um, in the in the ordinary case, and then in in the rare case, this one where the defendant has waived and permitting the settlement to go forward wouldn't um, adversely affect the public interests that are normally enforced here. Do you have an example of the, the non-ordinary case? Uh, I mean, you seem to say. Either, I guess it's not always after judgment um, that it shouldn't be um, uh, implemented, I guess. But, but when wouldn't it be after judgment? I think that, that, the, that in general, it, 
the requirement would be considered waived if it's not raised before judgment. We can't think of a case in which the so extraordinary circumstance would be fulfilled. So it's more or less jurisdictional after judgment. No, I'm sorry. What I meant to say was that I don't think that the rule could ever be enforced in the in the first instance on appeal if it's been waived below. I think the general civil rule uh, for non-jurisdictional requirements is that if it's not raised before judgment, um, it's lost on appeal. Except well, that's normal, but not, but not invariable. Well, I think that's the rule. That's that's the rule that um, this court has applied to constitutional rights um, and with the plain error rule, and also with respect to uh, structural constitutional rights that might um, implicate other public interests. The general rule is that if the requirement has not been raised um, during the during the trial stages of the case, then it can't be enforced for the first time on appeal. I think that's just plain error. Unless it's plain error, and in this in, in this situation, uh, if a plain error standard applied or something even more um, even more heightened uh, in the civil context, we can't think of a case in which uh, the registration. It's pretty plain that the things haven't been registered. I, mean, I think right, and and it's pretty plain that if they hadn't been registered, the district court should not have proceeded with the case. So I, I don't know why it wouldn't normally be plain error on, in in the court of appeals. Well, I think those, those uh, circumstances would be true in most cases in which, uh, the, for some reason, the requirement hadn't been reached at the trial stage. Um, so I, I don't think that the extraordinary circumstances present here that would justify um, overturning the, the independent interest in judgment that our legal system has, the, the finality of judgment, the rights of the parties um, in relying on that judgment, and the judicial resources expended. You know, I think in some ways you could think of this requirement sort of like a filing fee, that, that it's um, — it serves interest beyond those of the parties at the district court, and um, therefore you wouldn't think of it as waivable at the instance of the defendant. But there really are, in our recent decisions, it seems to me, two different lines of authority. There's the Bowles and the John R. Sand and Gravel, which treats these sorts of things as jurisdictional, and then the Arbaugh line that doesn't. And it does seem to me that the language here, uh, uh, no suit shall be instituted, sounds an awful lot like uh, Suit shall be barred, or the other language in, in bowls. I think it's similar to a lot of language that's used in statutes of limitations, that, which are traditionally considered non-jurisdictional. That no statute, uh, no suit shall be instituted. I think what's important is that it speaks uh, in terms of the actions of the parties. It's the parties who institute a suit, uh, not the court. So it doesn't speak in terms of the power of the court. Um, and there's no evidence. I don't think that Congress intended to withdraw the broad grant of jurisdiction in 1331 and 1338. I think Bowles and John R. Sand were cases in which the court's own precedents had previously treated uh, the rules at issue as jurisdictional and had accorded them jurisdictional consequences. Um, so those were cases in which the court relied on, on stare decisis. But I don't think that we have uh, any similar situation here. There's no but what about the congressional reaction to the Second Circuit's decision? It um, provided that the, there was to be no jurisdictional bar in criminal matters. Didn't didn't affect jurisdiction in criminal matters, but it didn't say anything about civil matters. So, isn't that some kind of implicit ex- acceptance that in, on the civil the civil cases it would be jurisdictional? I don't think so. I think um, in, in enacting uh, that, uh, Congress had recognized that the incentives uh, for registration should stay in place in the civil context, but that making an exception wouldn't, um, wouldn't make a difference uh, in the criminal context. I think Congress still spoke of it uh, as, a, as a non-jurisdictional requirement in the legislative history. Uh, so I don't think that there's any um, indication that Congress has ratified uh, the Second Circuit's decision here. Thank you, Ms. Anders. Ms. Merritt. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. We'll start with the statutory language, as the Court has been discussing for the last half hour. Section 411A appears on page 1 of the petitioner's brief. It uses first the mandatory word shall in commanding that no action shall be instituted. It does not contain a limitations period, as statutes of limitations do. It simply says no action shall be instituted. No waiver. Until. That's a limitation period. Until. Until. 
pre-registration or registration that has been made. That's correct, Justice Scalia. That's and that a limitation makes, period. That makes it's a limita- It's a requirement that registration be made. It is quite analogous, although stronger, than the statute in the Hallstrom case. The hybrid argument that the Solicitor General was referring to is the Court's decision in the Hallstrom case, which was a provision of the environmental statutes. It's common in several of those statutes, providing no action may be commenced until a notice is filed. Our provision here is stronger. It says no action shall be instituted instead of no action may be commenced. Commence. Even if this case is not jurisdictional, even if this statute does not impose a jurisdictional limit, which I will strongly argue that it does, it at the very least imposes a mandatory command like the statute in Hallstrom. And there is no reason in this case to reverse the Second Circuit, even if this is a mandatory provision. As you'll recall, in Hallstrom, the parties had gone through four years of complicated environmental litigation, went up through the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals reversed, saying you did not comply with this notice provision. This Court held that it did not need to decide whether that provision was jurisdictional in the strictest sense of the term, because it was at least mandatory. And the Court reversed, despite that time, sent the case back. In fact, I believe, Mr. Chief Justice, you asked about whether the mandatory issue would be within the Court's grant of certiorari. The grant of certiorari in Hallstrom referred to the jurisdictional issue, and the Court decided that rather than get to the strict issue of jurisdiction, it would decide on a mandatory form. But there's no reason, if we are — if the Court wants to avoid the jurisdictional issue and endorse the mandatory hybrid one, the Second Circuit should still be affirmed in this case. The parties raised Section 411A quite clearly to the District Court. They used this provision as their major defense of both the substance of the settlement's fairness and the representation. The representation was the major issue that the objectors raised in the District Court. And so both parties, the plaintiffs and the defendants, argued in their briefs, and it's not simply a few sentences. We've provided the parts of the record in the appendix to our brief, that the reason that this settlement should be upheld was because of this mandatory, they called it then, jurisdictional provision. That was an essential argument that they made to the District Court, and that they then repeated to the Second Circuit in the merits briefs long before the Circuit said then, wait a minute, you're making a curious argument here that this is a jurisdictional provision that upholds your settlement, but that we still have uh, the ability to look at this uh, settlement if it's jurisdictional. I'd like to return to the language of Section 411A. As I've argued, it begins with this mandatory language, no action shall be maintained. In, in, aren't there statutes that have exhaustion requirements or like the EEOC filing requirement that say you can't sue until you've gone to X administrative agency, and those are not considered jurisdictional? That's correct. That's correct, Justice Ginsburg. Many of those statutes refer specifically to exhaustion. The Prison Litigation Reform Act, for example, that some of the parties cite, refers specifically to exhaustion of remedies after the no-action sort of language. Every jurisdictional statute has its own language and its own story. Uh, We could say they're like Tolstoy's unhappy families. They're all different. And in this case, the story of the Copyright Act and its language is very distinctive, both in the public purposes that it furthers and in the language that it uses. Again, on the statutory language, we have the very mandatory language, no action shall be instituted, no modifiers, there's no provision for waiver. The Solicitor General's uh, assistant mentioned that this statute is like fee waivers. It's not at all like a fee waiver because the statute for fee waivers explicitly gives the district judge authority to waive the fee in the case of an informa pauperis uh, plaintiff. This statute contains no waiver for the parties. It contains no discretion for the district judge. And in the last word of the last sentence of this very short three-sentence provision, Congress referred explicitly to jurisdiction. And I'd like to look very closely at that word, because any plain reading of this section will show, shows that Congress intended the entire provision 
to refer to the jurisdiction of the court. I Again, thought that, that last sentence is just relating to um, the, the court can has a, authority to decide this particular issue, uh, copyrightability, or, um, even though the registrar has chosen not to enter the suit. So the, the sentence simply says, Court, you have authority to decide this question. That's the most immediate reference, Justice Ginsburg, but the three sentences work together. And if we look at the three sentences, they appear on the first page of the petitioner's brief. The first sentence creates two categories of cases, those that the Court may decide and those it may not. Let us say for now we're not naming what that power is. We're simply saying two categories of cases. One the Court may decide, the other one it may not. The second sentence then adds a small group of cases to this first category, the one that the Court may decide. As my opposing counsel mentioned, Congress did that in response to a particular case, the Vacheron case. Vacheron itself was built on a line of cases holding that the previous section, like 411A, was a jurisdictional limit. The reason that courts could not consider a copy, an application for a petition for infringement, a complaint, I'm sorry, from a person who had not yet gotten registration was because they construed that predecessor as jurisdictional and therefore they had no jurisdiction to hear an infringement claim until this person instituted a mandamus suit and got the certificate from the register. I, so I would have thought that cut against you in the sense that in the same paragraph, uh, Congress used the word jurisdiction, uh, uh, but they didn't use that in the provision that you're arguing does deprive the Court of Jurisdiction. No, Mr. Chief Justice, because when Congress revised this statute in 1976, it had before it 60 years already of courts construing its language, no action shall be maintained, which was the previous 1909 language, as a jurisdictional limit. There had not been any uh, resistance to that notion. Even courts as early as the 1920s in the Lumiere case, the Second Circuit did not use the word jurisdiction, but it held that this provision was unwaivable. What the parties want to do here, of course, is to waive the provision. So the language was working quite nicely for Congress. No action shall be maintained. They switched it to instituted to make very clear they meant at the beginning of the action. There had been a few parties who had argued during the early 20th century that they, if they snuck in the door, they could remain inside. Or they, I'm sorry, once they got inside, they could file the get the certificate, and the courts had rejected that, but Congress cleared up that particular problem. So Congress knows that its first sentence is working quite well. Congress then adds the second sentence to, and these, of course, are, are people working with the Copyright Office, experts in the area of copyright law. Congress adds the second sentence, which adds the small category of cases to the ones that may come before the court. And then in the final sentence, Congress gives a clarification about that final group of cases. As Justice Ginsburg said, the Congress made clear that when the register decides not to appear in these cases, the Court may still go on and has the power to decide these cases. It's, now, not, it's not a very big deal to register your copyright. It is not at all a big deal, Your Honor. In fact, for freelance writers, one may register an entire year's worth of works on a single form for $65. And, but, but doesn't that mean that it would be odd to make jurisdiction over an action for infringement hinge on whether you've, you know, dotted an I and crossed the T? Not at all, Your Honor, because, again, the copyright statute has a different history than other jurisdictional statutes. Before 1909, owners of copyright had to dot every I and cross every T within a limited period of time. If they didn't, they lost their entire ownership in the copyright. What Congress wanted to do in 1909 was to give copyright owners a longer period of time to comply with some of these formalities. But it still wanted to preserve the public interest that registration serves. We haven't talked yet about the major public interest that Congress had in mind here. It is ironically the very problem that gave rise to this lawsuit, trying to find the owners of copyrighted works. Before using a copyrighted work, any person needs to find the owner to ask permission. 
The electronic databases in this case have argued that they are somehow special, that because they need to obtain many permissions, they shouldn't have to do it. Universities, libraries, archives obtain as many or more permissions as electronic databases in every year. For a large university like Harvard University or The Ohio State University, we have to obtain permissions for every article that is distributed in a course pack to our students. If one of those articles is a freelance work written by Mr. Muchnick, for example, we have to track him down and get his permission to use that article. So the registration system was Congress's response to this problem of finding the owners of copyright. Isn't this it true, though, that, that most copyright holders, most people who write articles, freelance articles, it's just even if it's only $65, it's not, not worth it because they really don't expect to get they don't think anybody's going to infringe in the first place, and if it did, what damages would be, just wouldn't be economically worthwhile. So it, I think it's a fact that most <coughs> copyrights are not registered, isn't it? The beauty, Your Honor, though, of the solution that Congress adopted with the registration, moving this registration to a jurisdictional element rather than to uh, an element of the claim as it was in the 19th century, is that the copyright owner may do this any time. Copyright lasts, of course, for the lifetime of the owner plus another 70 years after death. Sixty-nine years after my death, my heirs could register my copyrights if they are finding that somebody is now making a lot of money off of my works, and they could then take, bring an infringement suit against that person. It's odd to think of a jurisdictional restriction as being a looser element than a claim element, but in this particular story of copyright, it is. What Congress did was to say, we want people to own copyrights immediately without complying with formalities. And in 1976, Congress even extended that to unpublished work. So I already have a copyright in the notes I have in front of me and in the emails I sent last night and so forth. But Congress said, with this huge sea of copyrighted works, before somebody can bring an infringement action in the federal courts, we want them to confer a public benefit. We want them to register the copyright so that other people can find the owner and request permission. What will happen in this case under the terms of this settlement is that the defendants who did not take time to find the owners of these works, even though the owners of these works were easier to find than many of the very elusive owners of works that archives and historical societies search for, they did not find, look for the owners because they thought it would be too difficult. This settlement now gives the defendants a perpetual right to use all of those works without ever identifying the owners and without the owners ever being identified on the National Copyright Register, which is what Congress wanted. If I want to create a competing database to any of the defendants, I have to undertake the arduous work of tracking down all the owners. Well, there's some that can't be found. So if we take your position, there's some that can't be found. We just can't create our database. Justice you know, Breyer. That's, that's the problem that's underlying the fairness of this thing. I'm, in I'm, terms of if we take your approach, no matter how hard it is to find owners, you're just out of luck. That is to say there will not be databases collected because they cannot be complete because we cannot find the owner. If we I, take the position that it's sometimes waivable, that obstacle disappears. And now it's a question of the fairness of the situation. Justice Breyer, that concern exists for everybody, not just for electronic databases. In fact, there is information. The copyright. Right. I just and, wonder yes, why yes. Congress would have ever wanted this because kind of, of provision to serve as that kind of obstacle in any area. Because Congress wants to protect the rights of copyright owners. Congress has more than 200 years' experience balancing these two interests. And in fact, as we speak, Congress is considering orphan works legislation to address that specific issue. What Congress has, and that legislation would apply to all types of works, electronic databases, national archives, historical documentaries. And what Congress is proposing in that legislation is quite illustrative. Congress says that if somebody makes a diligent search and cannot find the owner, then the person may use the work. Well, that's the underlying fairness. I, 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 under there might, might be, maybe they'll win on that. I don't know what the merits of that are. But certainly an absolute bar might sometimes help some copyright owners. 
But many times it will hurt them, because since they can't be found, they can't be compensated. But if we set up a system to put some money in it, so if they are ever found, they will be compensated, that will help them. So that's why I asked the question, why would a Congress that wants to help copyright owners create this kind of system? And all the things you're talking about can be brought into play when we consider the fairness of the system. This is a, the system that Congress put in play is, Your Honor, one in which copyright owners have an absolute right to control the disposition of their works. That is the current system, even without getting to the jurisdictional issue. Congress may change that disposition, and that is within Congress's control. What they have been trying to do is to balance the interests of the copyright owner with the interests of the public in using works. And that is the perennial challenge in copyright law, how to balance those two interests. Section 411A is actually a vital cog as part of that balance, because what Section 411A does is it says to the copyright owner, don't worry about all of this business of registering or anything else. You have your copyright, and you will have it for your life plus 70 years. If it ever becomes important to you to bring a lawsuit, then you can register at that time, come into court. It's a deal that Congress has offered to copyright owners in order to strike this particular balance between the public interest and the private interest. Do they, it, it, they're just doing that for money, but for an injunction, do they have to register before bringing an injunction suit? Yes, Your Honor, they do. In order to bring any action for if the injunction is based on an infringement. So if, we're bring, if the plaintiff brings an action for infringement and the remedy they seek is an injunction, then the copyright must be registered first. There are some cases in the lower courts in which we have a plaintiff who has a long-standing pattern of infringements that a particular defendant has been engaged in against that plaintiff. The Olin Mills case is an example. A local, uh, cop, a local photography studio was upset because a photo duplicating shop kept copying their copyrighted photographs. They brought an action for infringement, had registered several of the photographs. The court issued an injunction that covered future works as well, but those were all works within the same judicial controversy. So an injunction could reach further than a single registered work as long as we're talking about one single controversy. In this case, we don't have an injunction. We have damages, and we have thousands of different controversies. As the Court goes, the class action rules do not change the substantive law or the rules of, uh, of jurisdiction. We have here thousands of different controversies that have been aggregated for convenience under Rule 23b-3. But the Court must have jurisdiction over each of those controversies. Or, if we take the alternative route of Hallstrom, the hybrid approach, and we say that this is a mandatory requirement, Congress has been quite clear about this mandatory requirement. And that mandate must be satisfied with respect to every controversy in this class action. May I ask, I just hate to reveal my ignorance on something like this, but I had the same problem with your opponent. I really don't understand why it makes any difference whether you call the requirement mandatory or you call it jurisdictional in terms of the fairness of the settlement, all the considerations you're discussing. It seems to me, as a practical matter, it doesn't seem to me to make any difference. It depends on the brand of mandatory, Your Honor. There are, in this case, three different proposals before the Court. I, as appointed amicus, I have argued that Section 411A is jurisdictional, which I think the clear history and language of the statute, which I'll still come back to, mandates. Would you not make but, all the arguments directed at the fairness of the settlement and so forth if it were merely mandatory? Yes, because then the two versions of mandatory are the flavor of mandatory that the Solicitor General urges is that the district could, this is very mandatory as in Hallstrom, even if a party doesn't raise the issue, the district court sua sponte should raise the issue on its own. With some wriggle room, I think Ms. Anders answered that question. This, in this situation, it would be appropriate for the district judge to accept the waiver. That was, that was what Ms. Anders argued. I disagree with that because the public interest that Congress has put forth here would not be satisfied. 
The parties in this case argue the same public interest that parties argue in every copyright case. The plaintiffs in a copyright case always argue that their interests should be protected even if they haven't complied with Congress's mandates. The defendants in a copyright case always argue that allowing them to copy the plaintiff's works would give the public greater access to those works. There are no special public interests here. In fact, the electronic databases in this case have been superseded technologically. If we if we're talking about the ordinary case, in someone sued for infringement, apart from this settlement context that we're in, certainly is not going to raise that defense, no whether it's mandatory, optional, whatever. What defendant who is sued for infringement wouldn't say, Judge? I'm relying on 411A. They haven't registered that copyright. They can't sue me. I can't imagine a defendant in an ordinary copyright case who wouldn't raise. Actually, there are quite a number, Your Honor, just as there are defendants who will waive statutes of limitations. There are times when a defendant would rather have the resolution on the merits, because that then would not allow the plaintiff to come back into court and sue again. Or the defendant, the plaintiff in this case, might have sued, that you're referring to, might have sued for infringement, and the defendant wants to make clear that it has the right to use this work, that would then resolve, that would then establish that principle with this plaintiff, with related works or with other works. And let's switch to the plaintiff. If the plaintiff is in it for money, for real money, for damages, the plaintiff is going to register because then it stakes off. That's $65 is well worth it if the plaintiff thinks can get a, a large infringement award. The problem, Your Honor, is that there are many naive people who believe that famous movies and novels have infringed their freshman college essays. There are cases exactly like that in the courts. And so, in fact, the case that I cited in the brief is one in which the uh, author sued the university, claiming that the Department of English obviously had released his freshman essay to Hollywood because this movie built upon his freshman essay. In those cases, and this is another distinction, Justice Stevens, between mandatory and jurisdictional, the defendant doesn't even have to appear. The district court can sua sponte dismiss the complaint for lack of jurisdiction. Uh, we cite, I believe, seven or eight cases in the brief where exactly that happened, including two different cases. Of they, they wouldn't waive it then. I mean, the, 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 the problem, I take it realistically, is this. Let's take a group of people who want to make databases. Now, they want to use copyrighted material. There's a subset of, of people who've written that they can't find. So they say, here's what we'll do. We'll take $100 billion and we'll put it in a fund. And like ASCAP, that fund can administer this money for the benefit of anyone who turns up. Now, maybe that's illegal under some law. Maybe the class isn't right. Maybe they can't get proper representation. Maybe it's inadequate, etc. But what I don't fail to see, what I fail to see, has how, whether you could do that or not do it, has anything to do with registration. Because we are talking about the people who aren't here, all of whom, if he ever brings suit, when he's found, will register the copyright. The only reason they haven't registered, we don't know who they are. That's why. Maybe they have registered for all we know. All of the people who haven't registered yet, Your Honor, will not be able to bring suit because the class action will extinguish their claims. That's the important no, Maybe they can't do that because it'd be an unfair result. But where is it in this provision of law that's designed to stop that ever from happening? This provision, if we go back to Section and Maybe it won't, by the way. It depends right. on what the terms of the settlement are. We could have a subclass that allows a subset of those people to come into court. No reason you couldn't. So I Just don't know whether or not it's true that they won't register when they're found. Justice Breyer, once again, the Copyright Act itself already makes that choice, that no person may — and I'm not talking yet even about the jurisdictional provision — no person may use another's copyrighted work without their permission. In 1909, Congress thought all this through with the databases and so forth? And oh, yeah. The, the database issue — Sometimes, sometimes in 1976, by the way, Congress did, because Lexis and Westlaw existed before 1976. 
The, but the databases are a red herring here. Sometimes technology is different and sometimes it's not. The Library of Congress recently did a project in which they sought 7,000 permissions for a single project because they were digitizing the letters of Hannah Arendt. They sought those permissions. They, if they could not get permission, if they couldn't find the author, or if they didn't get an, an okay from the author, they had to leave the work off of the website because they are following copyright law. They have a copy of the original work that was given to them or that they purchased, and they may display that. But if they're going to make a copy of the work, then they have to comply by copyright law. I mentioned a moment ago that the databases here have been superseded by technology. And that is another way in which technology is not, is not different in this case. It is now possible for works to be scanned in photographic form or PDF form and put into electronic databases that are fully searchable. And that does not violate copyright law. If you compare, for example, law review articles on Lexis. Why, why doesn't it, just out of curiosity? Because it is, it is part of the original collection. Of, I'm sorry, if the, if, the author, if the publisher of the collective work consents to that. I'm thinking of, for, of this case in the New York Times. You say somebody who owns the copyright. Yes. Who, yes and who owns no, no, but what we want to do is we want to have in our database uh, all of the material written about slavery. And lo and behold, there are 4,000 books uh, that we can't trace who now owns the copyright 100 years later. And uh, there's no way to get those into our database. That's whether, correct. All right. That now, correct. that's a sort of loss. And my same point, that maybe that's as it should be. But it's rather surprising that this law is the law that will answer that question. This law relates to the question, Your Honor, because this law relates to the access to the court. The way it relates to the question is that what Congress was trying to do was to give people like you and me information about those copyright owners so that we could find the owner of the book on slavery. And as a way to maintain that register, which Congress started in 1790, uh, it said to the authors of copyrighted works, if you want to use our courts, the judicial power of the United States, you need to confer this benefit so that Justice Breyer can find you if he wants to include your work in the database. And that was the story that Congress did. I'd like to say just one more word about the word jurisdiction in the third line of Section 411A, because we were interrupted there. The parties have offered no convincing explanation for that word, other than to show that Congress understood this whole provision was jurisdictional. It refers most immediately to registrability, but that was not a new issue in 1976. Courts have always decided registrability. And, as the rules of civil procedure make clear to us, a party's absence never deprives a court of subject matter jurisdiction. So the, the rulemakers got it wrong in Form 19 when they did not write 411A as jurisdictional. They said, <coughs> copy the 1331, 1338, that's jurisdiction. And then they put the, um, the certificate requirement below the line, below the jurisdictional line. So that was, was, that was wrong in your judgment. As the, as the Congress made, I'm sorry, as the Court made clear in issuing those forms, they are advisory only. And they are not, they are not intended to give legal advice to counsel about what uh, the issues in the case are. And I suppose they, if you pick up any copyright complaint, you'll see the jurisdictional allegation will say 1331, 1338, and nothing about 411. And that is quite common, Your Honor, because in many situations what Congress has done is given a general grant of jurisdiction, as in 1331 or 1338, and then pulled it back for a subcategory of cases, which is what 411A does. In those circumstances, not just in copyright, but in all sorts of areas, the complaint will plead jurisdiction under the general grant, and then may show that it satisfies the condition later. This is, we're not arguing that for, and the Second Circuit hasn't argued that 411A is a jurisdictional grant. It is a section that takes back part of the jurisdictional grant in 1331 and 1338. Congress has more than 200 years' experience working with copyright law. As the questions today have revealed, I'm sorry. No, finish your sentence. As the questions today have revealed, striking the balance between the public and the private interest is a difficult one. Thank, Thank you, you very much.
Uh, Mr. Sims, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, I first want to correct the misimpression given that um, the databases somehow think that they're special. The databases haven't thought they don't need to get um, permission. They thought they had permission under Section 201C. And this Court had that case and decided two of you believed we were right and more of you believed we were wrong. But the databases took no position that they had no obligation. They got the rights by contract from the publishers with rep representations and warranties. And that's why when this case was uh, instituted, um, they went to mediation. They resolved this in a way. They got money from the publishers who were exposed on the representations and, and warranties. The authors were represented by the three major national freelance authors groups uh, in the country. And this was a way, we thought, to uh, address this problem responsibly and without taking the, the Court's time. Now, Mr. Chief Justice Roberts, you've said a couple of times that you wonder whether the language here, no action shall be instituted, uh, doesn't sound jurisdictional. And exactly to the contrary, this Court's decision in Jones v. Bach, which I think, if I'm remembering, you authored, but in any event, it's within a year or two, said that was boilerplate language used all the time for statutes of limitations that are not jurisdictional. And indeed, that's correct. In the footnote of our reply brief, we uh, list three uh, times in the 19th century when that very language was used for statutes of limitations. And if you put it into Lexis or Westlaw, you'll get uh, a zillion uh, statutes with respect to exhaust non-jurisdictional statutes. So I think quite to the contrary, that, that is the language Congress uses when it wants something to be not jurisdictional. Now, Ms. Merritt began with the word shall um, in 411A. I want to be clear. This case was instituted in compliance with 411A. The named plaintiffs registered their works and came into court and went to mediation, and the next thing the court knew, it had a settlement agreement um, to review, and it did review it under Rule 23. Um, she relies on the Hostrom case, but of course the Hostrom case, uh, which did avoid saying whether it was mandatory jurisdictional, involved the enforcement of a mandatory, at least mandatory rule, on the application of a party, and that's what the court does. And that's why, to some extent, other than with respect to settlement agreements, this case doesn't matter a lot, because the defendants will always be raising this defense. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Ms. Merritt, uh, you were appointed by this Court as an amicus to defend the judgment below, and you have ably discharged that responsibility. On behalf of the Court, thank you for doing so. The case is submitted.